think it's hilarious that pretty much every time I get here, Jerry's never here, so the old man gets to pick up. The th th um, I'm just grateful that my back is good enough to do that. The book of 2 Corinthians, I have nothing to do with when we pick a theme. It's strictly John and, and Mitch get together and, and Jeremy and they prayerfully come up with that. But I always look at it to kind of just see where their mindset is when we're considering a book. And the two themes for the letter came down to upside down and imitate the cross. How our faith in Jesus, from the very moment of our salvation, if it's genuine, will turn our life upside down. And how, again, if your faith is genuine, how your life should begin to reflect and imitate the cross. Now, for me, upside down and imitate the cross are two sides of the same coin. If you're imitating the cross, you will be living upside down from the world around you. And if you weren't a contrarian before your salvation, you will be after. Last week, Paul described an otherworldly comfort as he opened up the book. And if you weren't here, our pastor John made clear that biblical comfort is quite different from what we tend to think of when we consider the word comfort. I'm not talking about a thousand thread count sheets comfort. Biblical comfort is the comfort that only Jesus can provide and that he declared to his followers. Jesus said that he would send the comforter. Comfort that can be had in the midst of a threat, in the midst of suffering. Something that I know at least a few of you, whether you're here or you may be listening online, I know are experiencing. This morning, this morning <clears throat> pardon me, Paul will show us another side to a comfort that only God can give. That he can provide a comfort that can actually lead to confidence. And here's the thing. It's not confidence in you or me. It's confidence in him. That the God who holds you in his very hand, when your life is just mountaintop, everything's just yippy-skippy, everything's just going great, or when life turns on you, he's, in, in this particular text, Paul talks about being crushed and overwhelmed. He's the God of comfort then, too. Let's pray and jump in. Father, thank you uh, so much for the, the worship and the songs that we've heard already and uh, for the opportunity we have to consider your word in this passage. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would honor my preparation and that it would speak to the hearts of those that can hear it. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought that we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. 
And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him. And he will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Crushed and overwhelmed, as we will see, is not the same as being defeated. Scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter while he was in Macedonia after the events recorded in Acts chapter 19. Paul had been in Ephesus for a couple of times and at least for a couple of years in chapter 19 of Acts where Luke provides an account of what can only be described as just improbable events. Jesus wasn't the only disruption in the first century. Have you ever thought about when or how the age of mythology came to an end? The times of Apollo and Zeus, Rome had their gods, Greek had their gods, and the Jews had a god. The city of Ephesus was the home of a goddess known as Artemis. And if you're not up on your Greek mythology, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. Um, She was worshipped as the goddess of wild animals, vegetation, chastity, childbirth. She was deadly accurate with a bow and arrow. She could turn herself into animals, heal diseases, and generally control nature. Not surprisingly, farmers loved her. And if you're going to create a goddess, she was certainly impressive. When Paul came back to Ephesus, he did what he always did. He started sharing Jesus in the synagogue, and in just a few months, the Jews had heard about as much as they could stand, and they barred him, him and his colleagues. Undeterred, God provided a way for he and the believers to start meeting in a lecture hall. That's when it started to get a little little strange, at least to me. Over the ensuing two years, God enabled Paul to perform some pretty amazing miracles, just as, he, as, as it had happened when Jesus performed miracles, word sped like wildfire. This guy, Paul, things are happening, right? Eventually, there was this confrontation between some traveling, uh, the, the seven sons of a traveling priest and an evil spirit, resulting in, to me, one of the great lines in the book of Acts, where the evil spirit right before the evil spirit pounced on the the seven sons, says, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, who are you? I I just love the fact that God places in his word those kinds of encounters with evil because we do have them. And evil is, does understand the spiritual realm whether we concede to it or not. So right after that confrontation in Acts 19, the narrative ties back into our text. Let me set the scene. There was a silversmith named Demetrius. Apparently, he had a very profitable business based on Artemis. He was a silversmith. And think of how Ephesus was, had benefited from the silver and Artemis trade and all of that is similar to the way Broadway benefits New York City. You know, people are going there for that particular purpose. They were going there because of Artemis. But there was a problem building. The number of people over those two years that were surrendering their lives to Paul, uh, to, to Paul, to Christ, 
Paul was just preaching and teaching, and lives were being radically changed. Radical enough that a slew of them got together and burned thousands of books in a very public bonfire. The ideological divide continued to widen until eventually any civility between the believers and the unbelievers was turned into outright hate between them. Sound familiar? Then, like now, the divide and the hate should come as no surprise to us. Paul was preaching the good news, teaching about Jesus and a way of life contrary to the culture of the time. And in John 16, verses 1 and 2, Jesus told his disciples this would happen. Not just to his disciples, not just to the people who heard him at that time, but for us and anyone who claims Jesus as our Savior. John 16, 1, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think that they are doing a holy service for God. Paul and his fellow believers in Ephesus had not only been expelled from the synagogues, but the loss of business had the town folks joining the Jews, which is really weird, and wanting Paul and his travelers dead. We've got to exterminate this. So eventually the entire city was in a riot, and it is at this point that we get back to verses 8 and 9. Have you ever been in a riot or near one? I have not. But I can tell you that just watching a riot on television gives me a fair enough idea to understand that you could be fearing for your life if you're in the wrong spot. If you're in the midst of it, and a riot, it's just anarchy. So it's certainly understandable that you could be fearing for your life. Paul said, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought that we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. I personally have had a couple of close calls with death, several actually, sadly. A couple before my salvation and a few after. And I can tell you that if you honestly, truthfully believe that you might die, the things that you think about and consider is dramatically different after you're saved than before you were saved. It changes everything. Paul captures exactly what I mean by that perfectly in the rest of verse 9. But as a result, as a result of what? Expecting to die. We stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only, only on God who raises the dead. Not the government not your family, on God. Paul is reminding himself here how important it is. And it's ironic that it first and foremost came up earlier. I mean, it, it, when Greg was speaking. First and foremost, we rely on God. And he did rescue us, verse 10, from mortal danger. 
and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence where? In ourselves? In him. And he will continue to rescue us. You ever thought about why? Why would God continue to rescue us? When God chooses to rescue us, he always has a purpose. Always. His purpose, a kingdom purpose. And I believe we as believers in the West are prone to losing sight of this. We talk about it a lot. What passes for Christianity in America doesn't always square with what Jesus told us to expect as Christians. It's that simple. Paul understood God's call on him included risk. And here's, here's a newsflash. If you didn't know it, it's on you too. He knew that clearly understood that his boldness for Christ might cost him, might cost him possibly his life. He also understood that each time he was rescued, he was rescued to keep advancing the kingdom. He saw each rescue as evidence that God wanted him to continue the work to which he was called. Paul placed his confidence in Jesus. Jesus first. Then look how he includes the Corinthians. I like this. And you are helping us by praying for us. Viviana mentioned it. That's, I mean, that's the last P in, in the acronym. Right? Pray. Then many people will give thanks because what? Because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, which is a fave for me, says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's a really awesome thought. You know, once God's decided it, that's it. It's set. And Paul was called and gifted to share his faith in a bold, very public, and often at great risk to himself and his fellow travelers. Now, have you even asked God if he's called you to that? There's something to ponder. It's not just for Paul. Every one of us have been called to something. I wasn't planning on doing this now, but I had no idea where the Lord was going to let me insert this. But this, okay? Richard, my buddy Richard, is not feeling good today. And some of you who have the app got a, a notification. No foundations, not his video every Sunday. Well, except for this Sunday. So we get there, and I go over there, and there are over 20 people, not in the hall, wondering, well, where's the person who's supposed to be teaching us? This is just terrible. Nope. Where were they? Making boxes, because these boxes don't make themselves. And there were, by the time it was over, there was nearly 30 making boxes, including me, by the way, because it was fun. But the point is, you don't ever know what's going to be tossed your way. So what's your attitude going to be? Are you going to be looking for how the Lord might be able to use you in that moment? Or are you going to be thinking, oh, gosh, this is just ridiculous. This is No, you see, it's really a matter of you've been called to serve and serve in the opportunities that God puts in front of you. That's what Paul and his travelers were doing. They prayed. You may not have been called to share your faith, but you can fold a piece of cardboard into a box. 
and you can pray. If you're not called to share, one of the things that Paul was at great risk, and here in the West, you know, we don't feel an awful lot of risk being a preacher. I mean, I'm playing a golf tournament. You the preacher? No. No, I'm not the preacher. But pray for us because we need it. Pray for John. Pray for Mitch. Pray for Jeremy. Pray for me. Believe me, we do need it. The barbarians are not at the gate, but they're coming. The ideological tension that were building in the first century Ephesus are certainly building here and around the world. What will your part be? Let's see what Paul, what else he has to say. Look at with me at verse 12. We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given honesty and sincerity in all, all of our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world, and especially toward you. Our letters have been straightforward, and there is nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Then on the day when our Lord Jesus returns, you will be proud of us in the same way that we are proud of you. Hey, listen. Even Peter said some of the things that Paul wrote were hard to understand. There are certain things that when, you know, to wrap your head around takes a lot of effort. But it's straightforward. This is just an amazing pivot. Overwhelmed, crushed, confident, clear conscience. We've still got work to do. This is going to be a very difficult letter for Paul. I'll give you a little tip. If you haven't read the book yet, this is not a highlight reel kind of book. There's a lot of struggle in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a lot of great stuff. But he knows that he's about to write a very challenging letter to these people, and he loves them. But he has important words for you and I as well. Paul was depending on God's grace, not how clever he could be. Not being manipulative. There's no song and dance here with Paul. It's just straightforward, right between the eyes. If, if, if Paul's anything, if his letters are anything, it's right there. You cannot like it or like it. It doesn't really matter, and that's what I want you to see. Do not miss this. Whether they do or don't understand doesn't change a thing for Paul. Whether the people you engage around you don't get it, don't understand why in the world you could do Look, I've told you before, my own father thought I was an idiot for believing in God. Happens. Whether people get it or they don't get it doesn't change the message. God's message is God's message. Plain and simple, as John likes to say. That's what he was about, sharing it. And Paul didn't only just want Jesus when he returned to be proud of him. He wanted Jesus to be proud of the people that he felt responsibility for teaching. And that's exactly the way the staff here and the elders here feel about any of you who come to grace. We want God 
to look on you and to be involved in your life and to be just to be able to smile when he looks at how you're living your life. Confident and a clear conscience. Can you say that about your faith and commitment to God's kingdom this morning? It's a hard saying. That's a hard thing. Is your service for Christ confident and with a completely clear conscience? All right, I'll fess up. Nope. I mean, I have some good days. And I suspect each of you do as well. But I don't think we hold ourselves to a high enough standard. I just don't. I think here in America, we're fine with, well, you know, I went. I was deacon of the month. You know, I mean, I just don't know that we've made the priority that God really would like to see in us. But God doesn't beat on you with a stick to love him and turn your life and look for opportunities. He just doesn't. And if we're, if we're going to cruise, he lets us cruise. His will will not be thwarted. Don't confuse the two. That's not going to happen. God's will will occur. But I think if we're all honest... We'd all want to have more days when we'd have a clear confidence and conscience that we know that we, when we put our head down at the end of a day, we go, Lord, that was awesome, right? I mean, wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want that? So what are our takeaways? <clears throat> head. If sharing your faith is difficult for you, learn how to commit yourself to pray or desire to learn more how you can serve the kingdom. Prayer is great because you can, you can be infirmed, you can be sidelined, physically unable to do anything, and if you can think, you can pray. God has got something for Every single one of us, no matter what condition your life is in. So commit yourself to pray for those that do. You know, do share. <clears throat> I mentioned a couple of weeks back that prayer made no sense to me right off the bat, initially. It does now, but I wanted to clarify something because I don't think I made it plain then. Don't confuse the fact that I understand and I haven't... I believe that prayer makes sense because God's called us to do it, but don't confuse that with getting it because I have absolutely no idea how there's a connection between when we pray and when God acts. Just don't know. I just know it does. Sometimes God chooses to dispatch angels to intervene in our life, and we know we're at the wheel. We know there's no possible way. I happen to be a very confident driver, and I've been in some circumstances, even once with Cherry, where I thought, after we got out of that, I just said, thank you, Jesus. There's just no way in the world. Thank you for that, that angel that kept our car from spinning into ongoing traffic. It happens. But do I know why 
or the connection between when we, people pray and things like that happening? I have no clue. But I know this. I said to her immediately after that incident, was in Mississippi in a thunderstorm, I just said, God ain't done with us yet. That's what Paul's talking about. If you're rescued from something that clearly should have taken your life, God's got more work for you to do. Heart. Oh, yeah, I wanted to say that, actually. Job said it best, by the way. We're going back to head because I really didn't want to let this one go. Job said, though he slay me, yet what? I trust him. Do you really trust God? Really? It sounds completely ridiculous right up to the very second that it doesn't. It just does. I mean, and it, you can think, why would I trust somebody I can't see? It's, 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 I would tell you that it's hard, but it's not. Because the second you believe and you rely on God and his un I mean, it is just no bounds to his grace. You find yourself trusting and relying on him. Heart, when crushed and overwhelmed, lean on God. Paul managed to overcome his bewilderment in the middle of a riot. How? By relying on God and depending on his grace to see him through. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you are in a pickle. And you need to lean on God. It's okay to lean on your family. I mean, that's, a, that's why, it's one of the reasons why God gave you a family. But you got to lean on him first and foremost, as Greg said earlier. <clears throat> Trouble in your life is inevitable. The only question on the table is how you're going to deal with it. Was Paul scared? <laughs> I think he was. He was writing to people months afterwards about it. Was he only thinking about himself? I think that's pretty queer as well. He was not. He was thinking of others and the ministry that he still had to do. Why? Because he trusted Jesus and that he had more work to do. Hands. And there it is. Trust Jesus. When terrible things are happening in your life, where do you turn? Who do you trust? Paul trusted Jesus. I want to close with a reminder. <clears throat> Trusting Jesus when everything went south for Paul wasn't automatic. Verse 9 read, Paul had to learn. He, was lear he learned to rely on the Lord. If you find it hard, possibly impossible to rely just to rely on God when life is going sideways on you, please don't give up. If Paul had to learn how to rely on God, then I can tell you this. It's not a gift reserved only for special people, only for some of his saints. Paul learned to rely on the Lord, and you can too. If this is striking a chord with any of you, please see one of us. Talk it out. John, Mitch, Jeremy, me, the elders, deacons, somebody. Talk to somebody about it. 
if it's too hard for you to trust the Lord, will you say, no, I got to put my hands back on the wheel. I got it. This is going to come down to me. Well, you're part of the equation, but it doesn't come down to you. You know, I was just going to say that it's comes down to amazing grace, which it does. But the song you're about to sing is a song that I just love the fact that Mitch decided that this is what they were going to sing. Because we have a very great God. And you either believe that or you don't. And by believe it, I mean like the Walendas. I tell this when I do a funeral, you know, that the Walendas were a high wire act and they, went, they, they had this, one of them, the dad I believe, would go across Niagara Falls on a wire. And it was quite an act. And he would walk across the falls and they'd get to the other side and everybody's cheering. And then he goes, okay, how many of you believe that I can, do, I can take a wheelbarrow with, and, and go across the other way? And there's yays and there's nays. But then he added this. Okay, of all of you that said, yes, I can do it. Which one of you wants to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? That is the very second you know the difference between what you believe and what you trust. There's plenty of you who say you believe. But do you really trust God? Do you really rely on him? That's the moment of truth. That's my prayer for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's sharing his heart and the, tr- and the difficulties that he had and how when he was crushed and overwhelmed, how you came alongside of him and provided for him a confidence that there was a reason why he managed to survive a riot in Ephesus, and that was that he still had more work to do. And I pray that's the same thing for each one of us in this room and that can hear my voice, Lord, that we would learn to rely more and more on your grace, for I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.